and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark, and a huge welcome to all of you for the opening episode of Season 9. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you didn't miss us too much during our break. And we're really grateful to anyone who re-listened to our chosen cases during the time we took off for your comments and your discussions about those episodes. We always love it when we hear from listeners, but there is something really humbling when we hear from someone who is really close to a particular case that we featured in an episode. And one such message we received refers to Season 8, Episode 20, in which Bethan shared two stories which involved domestic abuse against men. So one of the men featured was an incredibly brave man called Alex. A friend of his listens to our show and sent a really amazing message to us on Instagram. So she told us about how they met during the course of the investigation and became friends. And she told him about how we were going to feature his case and he asked for her thoughts on the episode. And then she let him know what she thought, which is incredible, but also terrifying as well. I was just thinking, oh my God, he knows that we've talked about him and his case. It is always really weird and we've had it quite a bit, haven't we, in the past? And you kind of think, oh God, what what are they going to think about how we've covered this and them as a subject? So yeah, when we get the feedback that we always get, to be fair, it does help to validate that we hopefully are covering these cases in a sensitive way. Yeah, definitely. She thanked us for taking the time to talk about him and domestic abuse. And she said that the reason he wanted to do the BBC documentary that he was key in was to highlight the crime. She told us about how he really wants to give domestic abuse victims the opportunity to have a voice. And she also went into some detail on a couple of extra points for us and and you guys, our listeners. She said about how because Jordan pleaded guilty, there was no trial and psych evaluations deemed there was nothing to explain her behaviour. So for the coercive control element to the conviction, Jordan only got six months in prison, which feels low, doesn't it? It really does. But it was such a significant moment in legal history as she was the first woman ever to be convicted of this crime. More and more is learned every year about coercive control. Our listener also clarified that there was an appeal about whether the sentence had been unduly lenient. But the panel of judges decided that actually Jordan had been sentenced at the top end of the available tariff. So the sentence stood. And apparently Alex wasn't phased by this. He wasn't going to court for punishment. It was to show domestic abuse victims they can and will be listened to. And our listener thanked us for covering the story so sensitively. So it was lovely to hear, wasn't it? It really was. She also told us a fact that I hadn't spotted at all during my research. Alex was a twin. So it's one thing to be separated from family anyways, but from your twin, that must be even harder. She gave us some further information about PC Finn, who really went above and beyond to help to rescue Alex. So he was then promoted to sergeant and is now actually an inspector. So the sort of person you really do want in that top job. So the message ended with Alex has moved on so well in his life and continues to enjoy the love and support of his amazing family. Which is is lovely, isn't it? And you may remember the episode, but if you haven't listened to it yet, uh, please go back and listen. So season eight, episode 20. And just while we're on the subject of subjects of uh, our cases and our episodes, I just wanted to mention that there is a a brilliant film that has just been released last Friday, if you're listening to this uh, on the week of release. It's called Subject, and it's a documentary feature film, and it's all about the subjects of uh, documentaries and documentary feature films. So it's a, Ooh, a really weird look at it. That fascinating. It's, it's really interesting. I've watched the whole film. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. And it talks about the ethics behind it. Because quite often when you're the subject of a documentary, 
you're not a, you're not a subject of that documentary because you're already a celebrity for example it's usually because something really interesting has happened to you or somebody you know and you then have involvement in it so it kind of looks at in detail the good and the bad uh, side to featuring in a, a documentary and it features things like the staircase so um, absolutely fascinating and it's on a limited release so uh, just google it it's called subject and it was released in the uk and ireland on the 3rd of march so do check it out before we begin today's show we would like to thank our most recent patreon supporters uh, i'll let you do it bethan because i can't read that so we have char mckenna heather yam yvonne Doody. Sophie Marie, Wayne Cross, Fiona Murphy, Rachel Spring, Abby Haight, Darren Shepherd, Catherine Cade, Lauren Colley, Katerina Job, Jackie, Jackie, Jenny Bickett. <laughs> you wouldn't think that Jenny would be the name I could struggle on. Jenny Bickett, I would. Louise Murphy, Tina Nalon, Sophie Cat, and Emily Pankhurst. I could read them, really. I just didn't want to fuck it up. No, I'm just kidding. I couldn't. <laughs> uh, thank you to all of you guys. Um, yeah, if you would like to join these people gaining in the process, bonus episodes, competition entries, stickers, book club entry, and our fun new mini Patreon show, Crime Wave, please do go to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast to check it all out. This week, I am taking us back to 1988 for a case that I think you, Mark, will probably know, but perhaps not. Um, ever since I first heard about Marie's case, I haven't been able to stop wondering about what happened to her. It's going to sound awful, but I cannot remember what show I heard about her case on because it was a, it was before we started our show, I'm sure. It was quite a long time ago that I first heard about her, so I feel really bad because I wanted to name-check the podcast i feel like it was possibly adam at the uk true crime podcast but i'm not sure maybe once we finish today's episode you might recognize it mark as well but it just i can't stop wondering about what happened to her ever since i first heard about her perhaps it was because she was so especially vulnerable perhaps it's the absolute audacity of her attacker the randomness of it all the fact that the case hasn't been properly resolved with what I would class as a proper resolution or most likely it's due to a mixture of all of this. I'm kind of rambling now but maybe this will make sense to you later. It's a case that just fascinates me. Marie Wilkes was 22 years old and seven months pregnant when she broke down on the M50 on the 18th of June 1988. The M50 is a 22-mile-long motorway that goes through Worcestershire, Gloucestershire and Herefordshire in England, taking traffic into South Wales. Marie had been heading home from visiting her husband, who was an instructor at a territorial army camp in Simmons Yacht, and she was heading back to Worcester, and at the point where she broke down, she was between Ledbury and Tewkesbury, which probably doesn't mean much to any listeners who don't know the UK, but it is helpful to know if you know the UK when we look at driving routes our suspect may have taken later. And also it might be relevant that they are, I don't know, sort of sparsely populated or a bit more country, isn't it? Tewkesbury and, and Ledbury. Yeah. When her oil warning light came on, Marie made the decision to leave her 13-month-old son and her 11-year-old sister sat in the broken-down Morris Marina Coupe on the hard shoulder and she began to walk to the next available emergency phone to call for assistance. She'd not long been driving, and this was her first proper big car journey, her late husband later said. 
And the phone 700 yards from the car was Marie's only option. She spoke to the police call handler and asked them to call her parents to get them to pick her up and the children. So the police called Marie's father, but he was out, so he wouldn't be able to pick Marie and the children up. And they attempted to tell her this, returning to the call just four minutes after initially speaking to Marie, but she didn't answer. They could hear the sound of the traffic in the background, and they realised that the phone had been left dangling off the hook. So police headed out to check on her. 40 minutes after the phone call was made, at around 8pm that evening, the children were spotted by the police and they were stood on the hard shoulder of the motorway. The 11-year-old was carrying her young nephew and Marie was declared missing. Oh, this is disturbing on so many levels because obviously Marie's gone missing, that's awful. But to know that there's an 11-year-old and a baby on the hard shoulder, it's such a dangerous place, isn't it, in the dark as well? It is, it's horrible. And one of the things that's um, been talked about a lot off the back of this case, which I'm not going to go into loads of detail about, but I feel like nowadays wouldn't happen, is that there were a lot of witnesses who drove past and saw these two children and didn't do anything, didn't stop, didn't pull over and try and ring for assistance or alert anybody, just drove past. Isn't that weird? It's sad as well, isn't it? Yeah, so a lot has been talked about um, online and there's loads of forums and stuff where they talk about like the bystander effect, but it doesn't really make any difference to our case. But I just think it's a fascinating sort of element to this. Yeah, and we've covered that off before, haven't we, in in other cases like Debbie Lindsley, for example. Mm -hmm, Exactly. The police scrambled a helicopter to begin searching for the missing woman, but frustratingly, the hot June weather meant that their heat-seeking imagery was unsuccessful. Tracker dogs were also brought in, and blood was found at the telephone that Marie had been using. A witness came forward to say that they had seen a car three miles further up the road in a reversed position behind the crash barrier at the side of the road, and when this witness led police to the spot on the 20th of June, so two days later, the police finally found her. Marie had been left at the bottom of the embankment after being stabbed in the side of her neck, which had severed her carotid artery, and she'd been struck on the side of the head. Police heartbreakingly later explained that Marie had tried to use her first aid training and knowledge to stem the blood from her punctured artery with her hand, and this had actually successfully helped to reduce her blood loss, and it might have saved her, however her killer had punched her three or four times in the face, which had broken her jaw and knocked her out and that meant she succumbed to her injuries. That is a brutal attack, isn't it? I I know that's a really obvious thing to say, and 99 times out of 100, the attacks are brutal, but I just find it always really difficult to hear when a woman in particular is punched in the face, in the head by a man. That's almost more shocking than the fact she's been stabbed. It's crazy, and you think she's seven months pregnant, so she's more vulnerable, less able to get away. It's horrendous. And this was her attacker's way of preventing her from stemming the blood loss by Mm -hmm. just, yeah, punching her repeatedly in the face and breaking her jaw so that she's not even in a position to uh, stem the blood flow. It's, It's shocking. Evidence was found at the site that the car had indeed reversed behind a crash barrier like the witness had suggested, and police determined that this ferocious attack had lasted no more than 10 minutes. The police worked hard, and the police worked fast. Their investigation included witness interview areas in service stations, stopping motorists to ask them if they'd seen anything, 
and they got a lot of witness statements. Several witnesses told of a man who was described as a blonde man, and he was seen at the crime scene. He was described as of young appearances in his 20s, perhaps, with a blonde crew-cut haircut, possible yellow or orange highlights in his hair. He had pale skin and a long, sharp nose. This man had been seen driving his silver-grey car onto the hard shoulder next to Marie's car, and a similarly described man had then also been seen by witnesses next to Marie at the emergency telephone. So the police released their artist's impression of the suspect on the 24th of June, and on the 25th of June, they filmed a reconstruction aimed at jogging people's memories. The reconstruction featured WPC Taryn Green wearing a similar pink and white maternity dress to the one that Marie had been wearing when she went missing, and it was filmed on the M50 at the relevant area. WPC is one of those totally outdated titles that I just can't help but smile a little bit about when I research cases from this time. I I don't know. I think I quite like it because I think that it was so unusual that it had to have its own special title. And actually, I always think like, well done to these women that were like the trailblazers of policing. Absolutely. As a and, and you see some amazing female police detectives and uh, police officers really high up in, in police now. So, yeah, they were trailblazers. But it always dates a case, doesn't it? it when really they're referred does. to as WPC. So you can't always imagine that nowadays, can you? No. <laughs> Not at all. You always know it's the 80s or before. On the 28th of June, following an identity parade, the police charged their main suspect with the abduction and murder of Marie Wilkes. The man in question was called Eddie Browning. He was working as a nightclub bouncer at a South Wales social club. He lived in Cum Park in the Rhonda Valley area and he really liked the idea of having a hard man reputation. He was married and expecting a baby with his wife Julie, although he was also cheating on her at the time. He was a violent man with a reputation for mindless, random violence, and he had a criminal record, including two convictions for assault. He had once chased two policemen with a samurai sword, and he had only recently been released from prison in 1986, having served a seven-year sentence for aggravated burglary. This was his second marriage, with his first marriage notably having broken up because of Browning's violence, and his first wife later told the press that he was a violent and unfaithful man who cheated on her constantly, even on the day before their wedding, and he also used to hit her when she complained, including when she was pregnant. Police had become interested in Browning after several calls were made by the public naming him as the person from the artist's impression. One of the 14 calls identifying him had come from his own close friend and fellow nightclub bouncer, who said he matched the description, and also that he had become edgy and unstable as soon as the artist's impression came on the telly when they were at a club together. So Mark, I'm popping the artist's impression and a picture of him below. What are your thoughts? (laughs) Um... It, well, yeah, I can see the... We'll, we'll put this on social media because people are kind of like, what are you looking at? Um, well, first of all, I just want to say the picture of the actual guy, uh, he looks like a grown-up version of the Milky Bar Kid, so <laughs> I can't imagine him with this violent past, but clearly he has. Um, yeah, this is more of a kind of, yeah, 80s, 90s, more of a 90s look, uh, even though this is 88, but um, yeah, not bad, I guess. It's close, isn't it? I think that's very close. 
Several witnesses had seen a silver grey Renault 25, both at the phone box where Marie had been and also where Marie's body was found, parked up, and dozens of witnesses had come forward to report seeing the car driving erratically on the stretch of motorway near the murder site, with this blonde-haired driver speeding up to 120 miles an hour, and Browning was indeed driving his silver grey Renault 25 that day. On the day of the abduction and murder of Marie, Browning had had a huge row with his wife, who was also seven months pregnant, a row which had begun after Browning insisted his wife make him breakfast, which she didn't want to do because she just got home from work. So he stormed out of the house, went to several clubs and pubs and drank a considerable amount. Witnesses recounted him being in a foul and reckless mood and he headed home, but the argument continued, this time with his wife angry about him cheating on her. So Browning declared that he was going to drive away to a friend's house in Scotland after that second row. He didn't tell his wife how long he'd be away for, but he did call his mistress to tell her about the violent row with his wife, saying, Bev, I had to go then because if I had stayed, I would have killed her. Browning asked his dad for the best route to take to drive to Scotland from South Wales, and his dad suggested a route that included the M50. Browning was later found to have directions that included the M50 in his possession, but he was adamant that he had crossed the Severn Bridge on his journey to Scotland and he had not travelled on the M50 that day. So the police believed that Browning had basically seen vulnerable Marie Wilkes at the side of the motorway on his journey and he was still filled with rage from his argument with his wife and he was still fuelled by the alcohol he'd been drinking. He was reminded of his wife as he drove past this woman in a similar state of pregnancy and so he'd pulled over and attacked her. It it does all make sense, but I'm really interested to see where this is going and whether it's as straightforward as it appears, um, or whether he wasn't responsible or there's a question mark over it. I just don't know, because, yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? He's seen a heavily pregnant woman at the side of the road who's clearly in a vulnerable state because a car's broken down. It might be the summer and it's not that late, but it's kind of getting late, so it's getting dark. And yeah, she would have been an easy target for him. An off-duty police officer had seen Browning park his silver grey car by Marie as she was on the emergency telephone. But he assumed that Browning was offering to help her, so he just carried on. Several witnesses corroborated this account, reporting that they had seen the silver Renault perform a U-turn across the central reservation before parking up next to Marie. And one woman reported seeing the man getting out and touching Marie. One witness even identified the first two letters of the car's number plate, which matched Browning's number plate, and police were able to eliminate all other 479 drivers of silver-grey Renault cars in the country with the first two letters on their number plates. So Browning was further incriminated by this process of elimination, and it indicated that only he could have been responsible. So before we hear about the trial of Browning and the aftermath, we will hear from our second show sponsor. The trial of Eddie Browning took place at Shrewsbury Crown Court beginning on the 3rd of October 1989 and it ended on the 10th of November 1989. A notable moment in the trial was when Browning openly admitted that in his duties as a bouncer he could punch someone hard enough to break their jaw. Obviously it was known that Marie had suffered a broken jaw. And I'm sorry that's not a duty of a bouncer is it? Even back in the 80s, that wasn't in the job description. How hard can you punch someone? You should never be punching somebody if you've got to eject them from a club or a bar or a social club in this case. You've got to use some force, as in, you know, dragging somebody out perhaps, but you should never have to punch someone. So, yeah, it's just bollocks, isn't it? 
It is. It's just absolutely ridiculous. And Horrible maybe man. maybe you do need to punch somebody just to kind of like show that you're the boss. I don't know, like maybe you do have to get them to stop trying to attack you or something. But yeah, to break their jaw is is incredibly savage. The jury were not told of Browning's prior convictions for assault or aggravated burglary. So at the time, laws prevented prior criminal convictions being disclosed in court. So they weren't actually told of any of those previous convictions. The route that Browning stated he had taken on his drive to Scotland was debated. So he said, adamantly, he had not been on the M50 that day. He had used the Seven Bridge, but the prosecution pointed out that security cameras on the Seven Bridge did not pick up his car that day. His dad testified against his son, saying he told him to go via the M50, and then Browning got in his car and started the journey. They also told the jury about the written directions that Browning had on his person, which clearly stated use the M50. Browning had claimed that he'd gotten rid of his butterfly knife three weeks before the murder. This was a knife that he used to show off about having quite a lot as well, so it was one that people knew he had. However, witnesses reported him showing it to them two days before the murder, so he was lying. He still had it at the time of Marie's murder. And the defence argued that Browning only bore a superficial resemblance to the artist's impression, especially in regards to haircut and age. However, a tyre expert testified at the trial that the skid mark made near the spot that Marie's body was found was made by Browning's Renault 25 car, saying that he was certain it came from his front near side wheel. And this was corroborated by the fact that the front near side wheel on Browning's car had a braking fault that matched the peculiar mark that one of the skid marks had left. And it was also heavily worn and without tread, just like that mark. Browning's friend also testified that there was a thick smudge of blood on the car when he arrived in Scotland, with Browning saying it must have come from an animal that he'd hit on the journey before he cleaned it off. He then asked the friend for a bucket of water. So his friend had kind of mentioned it and he was like, oh, it must be an animal. He asked for a bucket of water and a cloth to clean it off. And then he said, could he keep the cloth? So that friend kind of testified about this. And that story was corroborated by the friend's housemate. So I, I'm I'm sort of wondering, is he keeping the cloth because there's evidence on there? Yeah, but then exactly. This is, this is 88. There was no such thing as DNA, really, or DNA science. There wasn't, um, but they could test a blood type against another blood type. So if you know about criminal activity in general, if you're quite clever around that, then I think you probably would have been aware of that in 1988. Yeah. Or part of me wondered whether it was some kind of trophy that you wanted to keep potentially yeah because if you think about trophies i mean usually it's an item of clothing jewelry something very personal to the victim but and this is graphic but but the victim's blood or a cloth that is stained with their blood that's really personal that's much more personal than a bracelet a neck, or, yeah do you know what i mean exactly. so i just uh, that's interesting that i that hadn't could even have, thought about that could have been an example of that and if it is an example of that then that's um, really unique, but understandable equally. Yeah. Not, you know, from my point of view, but from a killer's point of view, I yeah, could understand I why they would mean. want, yeah, because they, they would smell that and it would oh, perhaps take gosh, them back yeah. to the scene. I told you it would get graphic, but yeah, it, mm. I could I could see it for sure. And Browning's friend and housemate described the clothing that Browning had arrived in this blue and white shirt was a shirt that numerous witnesses had said that the suspect had been wearing. And actually, you can see it in the um, artist's impression of the suspect. So 
they described this clothing pretty much down to a T. I think he was wearing dark blue trousers or blue jeans or something, and all the witnesses had said the same thing there as well. The jury didn't believe Eddie Browning's version of events, and after five and a half hours of deliberation, they found him unanimously guilty of murder. Browning showed no reaction when found guilty, he was just staring straight ahead. The judge sentenced him to life in prison to serve a minimum of 25 years, stating that Browning had showed himself to be vain and arrogant in the dock, and that he wholeheartedly agreed with the verdict of the jury. The judge praised the prosecution and its preparation, and commended Detective Chief Superintendent David Cole, who had led the investigation, and he also said that the detectives who worked on the case deserved the highest commendations. There were cheers and applause from the public gallery when the guilty verdict was announced and Marie Wilkes's sobbing husband rushed to thank the prosecution. Her family were overjoyed at justice being served. And there was an appeal in 1991 which Browning lost, an appeal in which he complained about evidence presentation and many areas where the Court of Appeal completely disagreed with and his conviction stood. But in 1994 there was another and frustratingly this time, Browning was successful. Now, I don't know about you, Mark, but I am pretty much convinced that Browning is the killer. And even when I kind of saw like there was an appeal and that was granted, I was thinking like, what could it be? What could it be? But I'm still 100% convinced it's him. Yeah, it it makes sense that it would be. But what on what grounds was the successful appeal granted? Yeah. And this is really, really frustrating part of this case. So the new appeal, in, without going into loads and loads of detail, basically discussed the fact that West Mercia Police had withheld evidence and statements from the defence, the jury, and actually the prosecution as well, but just from the court in general. So in particular, there was evidence of an under-hypnosis session of an off-duty police inspector called Peter Clark. So this is the off-duty police officer I mentioned previously who had seen a grey slash silver car pulling over onto the hard shoulder at the crime scene. So he had basically said, I saw this car pulling onto the hard shoulder, here's what I saw. Because I saw someone coming over to help her, I didn't stop. During his hypnosis, in that hypnotic state, Inspector Clark gave the car registration number wrong and also gave some differences in his statement of the car make and type of hubcaps. So after the hypnosis, he insisted the registration number he mentioned during hypnosis was not certain. He told the police they shouldn't spend too much time on it. And Clark had been criticised quite a lot for having driven on despite having seen the man, who was presumably the killer, having turned and stopped by Marie Wilkes while she was at the emergency phone. And he he actually said, I have to live with that on my conscience, that a young woman and her child lost their lives because I made a fatal error of judgment. And so he made this video of him under hypnosis in an attempt to make up for his errors. But afterwards, he was really apologetic. He kind of said, clearly hypnosis didn't work. I got things wrong in the hypnosis session. So this needs to be dismissed. And he was like, I can only be sure of the details that are in my original statement. So the only thing he could really remember for sure was that the car's number plate started with a C and Browning's did. He kind of said, all of that stuff from the hypnosis, just let's disregard it. It was worth a shot, but it's rubbish. I mean, I've got two issues with this, first of all. So first of all, I I personally don't think he should be blamed for not stopping because... Oh, God, no, he really shouldn't, should he? Yeah, he's... 
for all he you knew, um, the guy that was stood next to Marie was her husband. So yeah, he'd come what, to get why, her or something. Yeah, yeah. Or, or just yeah, that's it. Somebody who had you know driven on the motorway to find her to to help her, or uh, another motorist who had stopped to help her. So I, I don't think he was under any um, need to stop and and help when he saw a man there. Unless yeah, it would be different if the man was obviously being violent towards Marie, and he could see that, of course. But it would have just looked like a straightforward case of there's a woman who's broken down and she's being assisted, especially back in the 80s. It would have been vulnerable woman, broken down, man is there to solve the problem. So clearly that's what the man is doing. So it's all good. My other issue is this whole hypnosis thing. And that was a bit of a thing in the 80s and 90s that it would be used in um, in these sort of ways uh, to help witnesses recollect their version of events. And I've been hypnotised several times. My issue with it is not many people fully go under at all. It really isn't like what you would see on TV. And I'm sure lots of our listeners have experienced it as well. And I think it it can almost, it's quite a, it's unique because you're in a real heightened sense of relaxation, but, but you can still feel that sort of embarrassment or weirdness around it. And also a need to come up with some shit that's, that kind of fills the narrative of the hypnotist and ticks their box. So sometimes you will, when you're under hypnosis, just come up with some bullshit that you think they want to hear because otherwise it's weird and you're kind of saying this isn't working and that can be a bit embarrassing. So, yeah, I'm not a big believer in hypnosis in in this kind of way at all. I have never been hypnotised, but I completely agree with you on it's a way to potentially unlock some of your memories if you know if there's something in your back of your mind that you can't quite reach and that sort of thing potentially but the person leading you through that hypnosis is going to have their own prompting and agenda because obviously they have to because they have to guide you so yeah the whole thing I just felt really sorry for this guy because you're you're right in the 80s especially this time of this I think the weirdest thing for me is thinking of the motorway being so empty that you could do a u-turn at the central reservation oh God, and honestly, go back onto the yeah. hard shoulder and people were obviously driving past but the the roads were so much more empty than they are now and you would you just be like oh brilliant someone's gone to help her why would it ever cross your mind that he's going to engage in this ferocious attack for no reason other than his own pride and drunk uh, you know drunkenness it's It's really, really crazy. I also, just on the flip side of it as well, I think now I kind of put myself in that situation as a man driving along the motorway. If I saw a woman, heavily pregnant woman at the side of the road who's broken down, uh, it's getting dark, she's on her own essentially, or a couple of young kids, um, I I would now, I think, uh, be quite concerned about stopping, pulling in and and going to her aid because I, I know that she's going to be feeling really vulnerable and I'm turning up there and she doesn't know me and she doesn't know what my agenda could be. So it's difficult for a man. I do honestly think it is difficult. Uh, Sometimes you do feel like you can't win and that might be an unpopular opinion, but you know, it's from my experience that that's how, how it can feel. That's so frustrating. And then from my side of things is you hear so much about um, people doing something along those lines you know you see like a baby in a 
in a pram at the side of the road on its own, you pull over and it's actually an ambush and it's a carjacking or an attack on yeah. you and you just don't know. I guess nowadays we are lucky in that we have phones that we could we could ring and you could alert the emergency service. If you see something that really worries you, you could get off at the next junction or even if you've got hands free in your car, you could ring the emergency services. In the 80s, they didn't have that. These phones were the most important thing. But there's also a huge element to this case around what the law actually was if you break down on the motorway. Even to nowadays, to be honest with you, there's a lot of uncertainty around what you can and cannot do. And people in the 80s, you'd get fined if you stopped on the motorway without good reason. So a lot of people wouldn't want to necessarily stop and support Marie because they were then worried, well, if I stop and she's actually okay and she's being helped, like you said, maybe that's her dad or her husband who's turned up or somebody that she knows or this man's helping her, then they might have got fined for trying to do the right thing. So that's another reason why apparently a lot of people didn't stop. And like even now it's quite tricky to know for definite what the actual rules are on stopping on the motorway what you can and can't do when I had that blowout on the motorway back in the summer and my car was then on the hard shoulder it was uh, it was after a bend so you didn't see my car on the hard shoulder really until about probably 200 yards before it it was quite a bit um when Chris and his dad came to pick me up they said like they saw my tires and knew that I'd be around the next bend. It was kind of, they saw my tires across the ra- ground. Wow. So yeah, oh, it was horrible. So I rung the non-emergency line and I sort of said, do you need to be notified that there is a car on the hard shoulder? Because I was like, I don't know whether I'm supposed to report that there is because obviously it isn't on the motorway, but it's there. And they were kind of like, no, as long as you're safe and you've got someone coming, then don't worry. But if anything changes or you feel unsafe, let me let us know then. But I was kind of like, well, what do I do? It's such an unusual situation. So there's just so much to this case where people could or could have acted differently and anything could have changed in the matter of seconds or minutes. I, th- I think that's what's sad because, of course, with the benefit of hindsight, had that off-duty copper actually pulled over, then Marie would still be alive to this day. He might not be. Um, Marie might not be, uh, the assailant could have killed both of them, but it's likely that Marie would still be alive. So with hindsight, yeah, of course you would say, I wish I'd pulled over because it would have been the right thing. But absolutely at that time, it wasn't the right thing to do. And that's why you didn't do it. So don't beat yourself up for it. Exactly. And while the hypnosis video had not been disclosed to the defence, it also had not been disclosed to the prosecution. So In this appeal, the prosecution said the video had not been handed to any of the lawyers because it was considered unreliable, it was a marginal part of the main inquiry, and because this, what they called sham hypnosis video, had in any case been made without the authorisation of the lead detective, it just didn't need to be spoken about, it didn't need to be shown in court, it didn't even need to be mentioned. The detectives who managed the investigation had already been cleared of misconduct in not disclosing this video. And plus, even without the tape... There was all that evidence to convict Browning. Would the jury really have thought any different if they saw a police officer who was off duty then changing his statement under hypnosis compared with his statement off of hypnosis? But Lord Chief Justice Taylor gave his opinion that if the hypnosis evidence had been included in the original trial, he could not be sure that the verdict would have remained the same. And so the appeal was therefore narrowly granted. 
In May 1994, Browning was freed. Although he was not declared innocent, but he was freed and he was not guilty. The judges also did not find that there was any bad faith in relation to any officer of the West Mercia Police, and West Mercia Police said that they were surprised and disappointed by the Court of Appeals decision and added that there were no new lines of inquiry which pointed to anyone other than Browning having committed the crime. Marie's husband said he was totally gutted by the decision and said it was the second worst day of my life. And more was yet to come. At this time, anyone who was acquitted on appeal was awarded compensation. This law was actually only changed in 2006, where they ruled that compensation would only be given if and only if the new or newly discovered fact shows beyond reasonable doubt that the person did not commit the offence. And I can't get over the fact that that was only in 2006. But basically, at this point, Browning received £600,000 in damages. And in in today's money, I mean, with inflation as it is right now, that's probably about a billion pounds. But seriously, that would have been the equivalent of well over a million quid, wouldn't it? If not a couple of million quid in today's money, that is huge. Yeah. And it wasn't like he then went on and changed his ways. Of course not. Just a year after he was freed, in 1995, he was arrested in a pub for possessing a knife in public. The knife was a butterfly knife, just like the one that was used in Marie's murder, just like the one he used to show up holding, even just two days before her murder. He was convicted at court for possessing it, and he was fined £150. In 1996, Browning made the news again after police issued a request for the public to help locate him because they needed to arrest him for allegedly threatening his estranged wife. The wife had dialed 999 from their home and the emergency operators reportedly heard the distinctive sound of him attacking her with a chainsaw in the background. What the actual fuck? Mm-hmm. A fucking chainsaw? He's absolutely He's a maniac, He's, yeah. He is. Yeah. And that friend of Browning's who, one of the ones who'd called in the tip, you know, that bouncer who said he got yeah. funny when it was I'm on the I'm worried for this guy, yeah. Yeah, well, actually, I mean, you'll probably love him. So he was charged with attacking Browning in the year oh. 2000. Um, police were called and he'd beaten the shit out of Browning, basically. His defence was that Browning had admitted to him that he was responsible for the attack on Marie. Which um, he probably actually, was, like you said. Mm, and this went to court then, this went to trial for him attacking. And the, the friend was actually acquitted of the attack, which I thought was brilliant. The the jury, obviously, or the judge must have listened and thought, you know what, if your friend says something like that, you're going to go for them, fair play. And it's understandable, which was quite mad, but I'm glad. However, despite that new evidence, this new witness statement, Browning couldn't be retried for the murder due to the double jeopardy laws in place at the time. So infuriatingly, he didn't actually get retried with all of the evidence plus this new evidence. But I, I don't think it would have carried much weight anyway. To He would have just said, I never said that. And it's his word against his mate's word. So mm. I, I don't necessarily think it would have ever got to trial. But interesting that even had it, yeah, it, it couldn't have because of that stupid yeah, exactly. law that we had back then. Yeah. And he was arrested in the years that followed for failing to stop after a car accident. So in this incident, he was also charged with failing to report an accident. He was banned from driving for 28 months because he was caught driving three times over the legal alcohol limit. And in 2018, Browning died, age 63, with police saying that it was a sudden death, but that there were no suspicious circumstances. So what an absolutely frustrating case. In my opinion, Browning absolutely clearly abducted and murdered Marie. 
yet he got to live his life a free man from 1994 onwards, drinking and drink driving, attacking people. And Marie's loved ones had to carry on without her. Her little boy was 13 months old when she was taken from him. So he's not going to have remembered his mum. It's just horrendous. But also, not only was he able to... So he had a little bit of disruption, I suppose, as he would see it in the rich tapestry of his life, a few years in prison, but then he's released. He would have probably quite happily served that time had he known that he was going to get 600 grand for it because he's effectively paid 150 grand a year or 200 grand a year to be in prison. So a lot of people would take that. So not only has he gone on to live his life on his terms, he's had all that money behind him to do what the fuck he wanted. And I'm not surprised he died at 63 because he, he probably drank himself to death ultimately if he was a big drinker and had all that money and no purpose. And one would hope potentially some guilt at what he had actually done back in the late 80s. But it is, it's frustrating, you're right. It's um, it's horrible because he got away with it. And it, clearly he must be responsible. There, there's probably a 1% to 5% of doubt in my mind, but I'm 95 to 99% certain that mm. that he was responsible for that. Very specific percentages. I'm like 100% sure. Are you 110% sure? That's impossible. <laughs> but I am I 111%. Laugh. No, it, I, I really hope that when he'd told his friend that he was responsible for the attack on Marie, that it was some sort of guilt that pushed that. But I just feel I like doubt with him being was. the way he was, it was a brag. I feel yeah, like. Yeah, it was a total brag. It was a... That would have been a brag. Yeah. I did this. I got away with it. Not only did I get away with it, I also got 600 grand in my bank account. Yeah. So there well, we thank go. You. What yeah. a horrible what case a horrible to start case. the new series off from. Mm. But can you understand now why I just could not get it out of my head? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you everybody for listening and we'll be back next week with another case. So we'll see you then. Bye.